Hi, everybody. Welcome to Colorado Inside Out, the, two, the December 14th, 2018 edition. We're very glad you're joining us. My name is Dominic Zuda. I'm your host for today, and it should be a very exciting show. So thank you for joining us. Let's get to it. Let's get a quick take on Westward reporting the results of MoveOn.org poll, a poll that shows John Hickenlooper polling at less than 1% among preferred Democratic candidates. Patty Calhoun from Westward. Uh, now, John Hickelooper is used to polling at around 1%. That's where he started when he had his bid for mayor. But uh, what does this show as, we, as he gets into the presidential polling season? Mostly it shows that the current crop of maybe candidates would fit in a clown car. If you looked at it, the poll actually, the highest percentage, 17%, went to nobody or somebody else. Beto O'Rourke came in at just under 15%, and he was the top vote-getter. So you can see that we're going to have a very interesting ride over the next 18 months. We certainly should. David, at, at what point does the eventual candidate, the eventual nominee begin to, I guess, maybe not dominate the polls, but at least get above 1%? When, when do we need to start paying attention? Uh, the year after next, in, in okay. the actual election year. <laughs> Jimmy Carter at this stage was an unknown governor of Georgia, went on to win the Democratic nomination in 76. Conversely, in 2004 in the Democratic primaries for president, Howard Dean, the Vermont governor, was atop of everything in December and the overwhelming consensus of the experts and everybody else was he was going to win the nomination. As it turned out, his scream in Iowa after coming in second place was kind of the end of him, and it didn't work out. So Hickenlooper's keeping his eye on the ball and working on uh, hiring a good campaign staff right now. Eric Son, political analyst, uh, the polls, uh, these early polls that we're seeing, do they, are they worth anything before we get to Iowa? Yes, they're worth something. Uh, sounds like an echo in here, but the voice of the very powerful I'll, voice of Eric Sonderman. I'll, I'll, I'll differ with David um, uh, a little bit here. A poll in December of uh, 2018 means nothing. He's totally right about this, but I do think polls start to matter maybe next fall, well before Iowa, well before any ballots are cast. And here's the reason: similar to the Republican contest in 2016, you have more candidates than will fit on a debate stage. If you're going to be a serious candidate, you need to be on the main debate stage, not the second tier or the third tier stage. And that will be determined by polling. So you need to start registering. You need to start showing up come next late summer or fall. I do think John Hickenlooper has a lane to run in, stylistically contrasting with Donald Trump as opposed to the big ideological contrast with Trump. It's a narrow lane. If a Joe Biden gets in, a Michael Bloomberg, people like that, the, name get, the lane gets very, very narrow. Natasha Garner, articles editor of 5280 Magazine. Uh, what do you think does uh, being uh, less than 1%, because of 0.7% depressed John Hickenlooper or say, hey, you know, this is, this is where I started last time, no big deal? Well, and since he isn't officially in the race yet, and true. if you're not polling in, in that race, it shouldn't be a big <laughs> deal. Uh, I, I don't think he needs to worry about it in the same way that I don't think any of the other potential candidates around the country need to worry about it right now. I think my biggest concern is that any particular article that I read has as many as 20 names or more. So as a journalist, I'm going to have to start memorizing <laughs> everyone's name who's involved in that, let alone voters by the time it gets to a ballot or even, in, in, as Eric mentioned, on the debate stage. I mean, we might need a fourth or a fifth <laughs> level of debates at the rate that we're going. 
Um, but I do think it'll be interesting. This this election is far away, but we do have a year to start um, drilling down on what these candidates are about and what what the country is looking for next. Because I think that's the ultimate goal. They do have to have um, someone to run against Trump, and they're going to need somebody who appeals to the vast majority of Americans. The problem is right now, I don't think anyone could say with certainty what that person needs to be. That is for dang sure, but it should be fun to watch. Let's get to it. The Denver District Attorney's Office has begun an investigation into collusion involved in the bidding process for work on the expansion of the Colorado Convention Center. The winning contractor, Trammell Crow, has fired employee, fired employee on Wednesday who was said to be part of the situation. And we found out on Friday morning that an executive had been removed from the company and from its website, and the scandal has continued to grow throughout the week. Patty, this seems to be changing minute by minute and growing in depth. What do we know so far? What do we need to be uh, focused on? We need to focus on the fact that this is not the only giant project going on in Colorado. This is a $233 million project, I think, and we are partially funding it out of the lodging tax we voted for that's paying for the billion-dollar National Western Center complex project. So, first of all, you hope the safeguards that caught this, and by all accounts it was a very alert public works employee, going through documents who somehow <coughs> found some hint that not, a, not an official city official but two private people, one at Mortensen and one at Trammell Crow, had been comparing notes. They'd been colluding on this. So an alert city employee caught it, and it moved fast. I mean, you saw they caught it probably on Monday. It went to the attor- uh, district attorney's office on Monday. We got a press release on it in a very forceful press release, unusual for the Hancock administration, saying, we're taking these actions, we're taking these actions, and crediting a public works employee. So. What we have to hope is at the same time they're seeing how deep this goes, they're also making sure the safeguards are in place for all these other projects we have going on. Tremel Crow has been a big name. Bill Mosier, who used to head the downtown partnership, is key in it. And, you know, his honesty and just how humiliating this is was pretty interesting. David, I realize we are very early to this situation, but from what we've seen so far, do, we, do you feel confident in how it's being handled both by the city and by folks like Trammell Crow who are making news with who they're getting rid of on their website, on their payroll? Well, Trammell Crow has been completely uh, groveling in all this, and in their press releases, we're very sorry it happened. We'll cooperate fully with law enforcement. So they've, they've said the right thing, and uh, credit to Mayor Hancock for moving rapidly on this. There might have been some temptation to brush it under the rug and say, oh, we'll, we'll just transition, Tram will crawl out, bring in somebody else new, but we'll go ahead and keep things on schedule. He, he did the right thing. Um, the broader question is, why is the city involved in this anyway? If there's enough convention business that could support large conventions, that's the point of this, if there's enough demand for that out there, then some private person could build it with their own money uh, rather than having to take it through tax dollars with all the potential corruption that necessarily involves. Eric, now, the mayor has nothing to do with this particular scandal. This is two private people and private firms, and they're investigating. But I can't imagine that the mayor wants this making headlines a couple months before an election. It's, they're not connected, but bad headlines are bad headlines. What do you think? Bad headlines are bad headlines, but to David's point, once you get a bad headline, once you're into the muck, then you can look like a take charge, clean the house kind of guy, and I think that's the role that um, Michael Hancock is trying to take in here. Uh, take here. It's a, a surprising story, as Patty pointed out. 
Trammell Crowe has had a strong reputation around town. Bill Mosier is always known as a personal integrity. I don't think that's going to change here. I would be amazed if it does. I would hope this is a rogue employee or a couple of rogue employees and not permeating the corporate culture. I think it's important to note the role Trammell Crowe had in this transaction. They were not a bidder uh, for the construction work. They're basically under contract to the city as a project manager. They were managing the project and entertaining bids from other big um, big companies. And I think if there was collusion, which is clearly what it looks like, that's where the collusion came in between the project manager and a bidding, uh, a, a bidding company. I happen to like, in general, in general rule, the concept of public-private partnerships, but I think you're seeing some of the problems. This is a public-private partnership. The whole A-line issue between RTD and Denver Transit Partners is a public-private partnership, and it somewhat dilutes who's accountable, who, where does the buck ultimately stop. Natasha, Trammell Crow and Mortensen are among the companies that are handling a variety of projects around the city. Big ticket ones, small ones, and have for years. Does somebody need to start digging into past uh, projects to see if this is not an isolated case? Well, that seems like something that a reporter will be doing in town probably right now as we're taping. Um, I think you know, one of the interesting things with this expansion for the convention center is to create a ballroom and, and a, um, a, 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 te a terrace yeah. outside as well. So I, I would just encourage everyone to put your dancing shoes back in the closet. The transfer delays related to this project are, are huge. So um, that's, I think, what we'll, we'll start to hear is uncovering both what happened but then also what this does for the projections of when, when it would actually open. Um, what I I do want to commend, and, and Patty mentioned this earlier, is a public works employee who found the anomalies and, and researched them and asked the questions. It's a perfect example of where one individual can make a difference, and um, even in a, a project as big as this, ask the important questions that can lead to um, setting things in the right direction. So kudos to that person. The new farm bill passed by Congress this week legalizes hemp production nationwide and should be a boon to Colorado farmers. Three Colorado Republican congressmen voted against the bill, all citing the removal of work requirements from the SNAP program as the reason for their vote. Farm bill is a big bill. I can understand that point. But, David, let me ask you, is this a big boon to hemp farmers in Colorado as it's been advertised? Yes, I, I think so. And, um, it, and this is particularly relevant to use of hemp, I think, to produce CBD oil, which has lots of uh, medical uses. And this is an example of something that never should have been a federal issue anyway. States are perfectly capable of making their own laws on that. And you can go back to the Marijuana Tax Act of 1938 for how excessive federal power uh, has retarded uh, innovation and, and harmed the health uh, of the American people. Uh, Representative Kaufman was right to call it a bill that was 20% farm bill, 80% food stamp bill. And I don't agree with taking away all work requirements uh, for people um, who are getting welfare. Uh, the bill said, of course, not everybody can find a job immediately, but they had other alternatives. You could be in a job training program, or you could even be a volunteer for some local nonprofit. But if you're getting money out of other people's pocket, you ought to be doing some work if you're able-bodied and you know, don't have small children at home and are capable. Uh, one thing that hasn't gotten enough coverage is Representative Tipton uh, from the West Slope got a good amendment in there which will speed federal approvals uh, for restoration of habitat for sage-grouse and mule deer. 
Eric, I guess uh, taking that as a segue from David, you have a fellow congressman in Colorado adding a decent amendment, and uh, Mike Hoffman in a lame duck situation, not needing to worry about where he's going to go politically, voting no. But I guess it surprised me to see Ken Buck with the with, in CD4 so much agriculture uh, driven in his district to vote no on the farm bill based on the SNAP program. They didn't need his vote; it passed by a huge margin, so there was no risk of it ever not passing. I guess it just seemed odd to me, but. Uh, perhaps I just don't understand politics. What do you think? Well, I think the last part of your question nailed it, which is they didn't need his vote, so he could go appeal to the base, which uh-huh. he's doing rather regularly. I heard him on Colorado Public Radio this morning, and it was uh, he was in a feisty mood. He wasn't mm-hmm. taking anything from the Colorado Public Radio reporter. Uh, Ken Buck strikes me as somebody who's becoming more and more of a base politician, which will get you elected and reelected to that fourth congressional district forever, but is going to limit any other mobility you have in this uh, increasingly blue state. I'm glad we're talking about this issue simply because it affects so many Coloradans, and agriculture is not usually an issue we talk about or around this uh, table, and we probably uh, should do it more. Can't claim to be expert in it. Um, you know, David covered the whole SNAP program issue. What I was surprised David didn't touch, given that a regular theme, if you're playing Copal Bingo here, is <laughs> um, subsidies and corporate welfare or whatever, is to the extent to which farm bills in general are subsidies, are welfare, and now maybe hemp farmers uh, can, uh, can be part, part of that uh, as well. I guess it's fitting that they describe it as a government trough that you would come to being in a farm bill. Uh, Natasha, this should be a big deal for hemp farmers in Colorado, but we are no longer the only state where you can grow hemp. Now there's a <laughs> lot of states you can grow hemp. Uh, it, does this open the gates, the floodgates to a lot of competition for Colorado's hemp industry? Oh, absolutely. There'll be plenty of competition, um, but certainly we have the head start. We, we have um, pilot programs and, and, and different products and companies that have been working on this issue for many years in Colorado. So they will have the opportunity to sort of jump ahead and, and find compliance with the federal um, rules and then move forward with that. I mean, I think economically it's a really interesting opportunity for Colorado. I think it's also an an interesting um, moment because, yes, we're talking about agriculture at this table. We're talking about the farm bill. And for me, what's interesting in Colorado is that it's an opportunity to bridge a little bit of the urban-rural gap that we hear so much of, particularly in the last election. Um, There's big businesses that are going to be interested in this, and then there's the farmland that's needed to do it. So I'll be interested to see if there's some some ground that's um, sort of made up between those two two issues as, as we move forward. Patty, what do you think about that? We have talked about the pot industry, but we have not given a, a good fair shake to when it comes to the, the hemp industry, the agricultural side of these things. Is this going to be a huge deal for Colorado? I think it will be. Colorado already has more acreage under producing hemp than any other state in the country. So when you talk about a head start, we've got a big head start. We've got a lot of companies here that are interested in products. The big issue will be, can you keep the level of THC to what is federally legal now? Will there be opportunities to expand it? What kind of products will come out? But it is a really great economic boon for rural communities because They've got land that a lot of other states don't, and they already have a head start. Former Colorado Speaker of the House Andrew Romanoff increased speculation of another run for the U.S. Senate this week. Romanoff filed paperwork with the Federal Elections Commission regarding the Senate campaign. His representatives said it was pertaining to his failed 2010 run, but Democratic operatives told Colorado Politics that Romanoff has been reaching out regarding a potential 2020 run. 
Eric, I guess my question here is uh, Romanov has, a, has earned a great deal of respect. His role in Speaker of the House, I think that was a 2004 election, uh, was uh, ushering in a lot of Democratic, uh, I wouldn't say power, but influence in Colorado politics. But I don't know if he remains that higher tier. And when I look at the 2020 race versus Cory Gardner, it seems it's going to attract the very top tier of Democrats in Colorado. It's still 2018. There's a lot of room between now and then. Does Andrew Romanoff remain in that top tier, or has he slipped a bit in Colorado politics? Well, he's probably slipped a bit simply because he's lost a couple races. You know, he's lost a couple races, so he's tarnished by that. And secondly, parties change, and in a state growing as rapidly as Colorado is growingly, there's a whole lot of in-migration, including a whole lot of people now active in the Colorado Democratic Party who have barely heard of Andrew Romanoff. He's a name back there with Roy Romer or other people who have been historically important figures in the Democratic Party, but not necessarily current tense. I think it is fair to say, I don't know what to make of the filing. I think it's fair to say that Andrew is at a minimum, shall we say, exploring his options. Uh, if I was the board chair at his current employer, the Mental Health uh, Association of Colorado, I would uh, probably be looking at uh, perhaps filling a vacancy because it seems like uh, Andrew is on the cusp of moving on. I also hear from very good and reliable sources that he is in the running and maybe in the top tier for uh, offer at least for a cabinet job in the Polis administration, a high tier cabinet job. So I. Perhaps Romanoff is having to make one of these decisions. Does he want to throw his hat back in the political ring? Or does he want to stay either in that association level or manage a major state agency? Natasha, that, that uh, 2010 run, if I remember anything right, was based on uh, Romanoff going ahead and picking a fight within his own party and uh, running against Michael Bennett. Uh, that tends to, that, 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 I think Eric made a good point. That was a long time ago. It's not like every Democrat who back then maybe been part of a burned bridge, is still running things now. But uh, that can make things complicated. If Andrew Romanoff is interested in running in 2020, does he, what does his path look like? <laughs> um, I think his path looks similar to the many other candidates that are going to be interested in the position as well. I mean, thanks to our term limits, that's what happens in Colorado. We have lots of very talented or very experienced politicians that are out of a job after a period of time, and then it becomes a question of what next. Um, Cory Gardner's seat is is, an, is a sort of a logical step for many people, Romanoff or anyone else who might be in that mix as well. Um, and what's going to be different this time is that Cory Gardner has, has a long vote record behind him now. He's as um, a leadership position. The, the running against him will be different than the last time. Um, and I think that the candidate that the Democrats are going to look to run against him will will be in response to that um, rather than just who wants to run for this race. It's going to be versus Cory Gardner versus just I want to run for this position. Patty, can we assume that whether Gardner is vulnerable or not in 2020, that this is going to be one of the top races in the country? Absolutely, and it's going to be a crowded field here because even if you don't care if you're going up against Cory Gardner, it doesn't come up, the chance to run for the Senate doesn't come up that often because you get there, you could be there for life. Diana DeGette is going to be in her district for a long, long time. So if someone wants to go somewhere in Washington, this is an opportunity. We already have Crisanta Duran looking at it. We have two declared candidates already for the Democratic Party. If Andrew Romanoff joins in, he will automatically have some boost because of his uh, background, but 
as Eric points out, people don't know who he is anymore. A lot of people who've moved to town, so he's going to have a very high hurdle to get beyond the 17% for somebody else or nobody. Uh, David, are Democrats uh, exaggerating Gardner's vulnerability here in 2018, what it might be in 2020? No, because Colorado is a very uh, anti-Trump state, and that inevitably, as we saw, is a large drag on anyone with an R after their name. Um, to the extent they want to heighten the contrast between the nominee and so their Senate nominee and Trump, Romanoff is very good for that. He's highly experienced, was by all accounts a very good Speaker of the House. You, know, you don't have to, whether you agree or disagree with his view on the issues, uh, people thought he was very competent and solid. He's now been running this Mental Health Colorado, a, an advocacy organization doing a good job on that. Uh, so if you want to, if, if you're on the Democratic ideology and you want to send somebody to the Senate who's going to be ready on day one uh, to be an effective senator, I think he'd have to be at the top of the list. But as Patty said, there's going to be lots of other people running. Uh, Mike Johnston, uh, a well-respected state senator, uh, is certainly, if you look at what he's doing on Twitter, um, kind of uh, targeting Cory Gardner already. So it, it, it could be a crowded field. But if, if the Democrats are rational rather than hysterical, 50-50 um, on both parties these days, um, they will at least give Romanoff a serious look. Let's get a very quick take on this last one. State Senator Daniel Kagan announced last week that he'll resign effective January 11th, although he was found to have, quote, more likely than not, and quote, used a women's restroom three times last year. Kagan said his resignation is unrelated to the alleged incidents. Natasha, uh, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me three times, I need to spend more time with my family. <laughs> <laughs> I think I could just leave that there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's amazing because we're not even in session. And I feel like the Capitol is in the news on a near daily basis, um, which which makes sense. I mean, we're gearing up for the session in some ways. But um, this, this, this is one of those for the end of the year recaps of, huh. <laughs> yeah. Huh, indeed. Uh, Patty, would a, installing a larger sign be a nice way to commemorate Senator Kagan's career? You know, you go to bars around town and you get confused by, you know, one will have a beach ball and one will have an umbrella and you'll have to figure out what it is. That is not the case at the Capitol. It is, once you go in the women's room, you know you're there. You don't go back twice. Yeah, that, that seems to be the case. I think that's where people are asking those questions. Uh, David, was this just a... Uh, politics being played, he had to wait until after the results of the election to make sure that the Democrats had won the Senate? Well, what, what he said was he felt currently he couldn't, he wasn't working up to 100% capacity, and so it wasn't fair to the district. So uh, who knows? I think it's interesting to see who is going to succeed him with the vacancy committee. It's, this is a district which, it is a Democratic district now, but it's you know, Cherry Hills, Littleton, places like that that certainly a Republican would have a chance in. Uh, Jeff Bridges, the state representative who is part of the district, has thrown his hat in the ring. And there's also uh, Angela uh, Engel, who is a, uh, very involved in politics and education, uh, leader of the movement to get students to skip taking standardized tests uh, and thereby, in my view, destroy accountability for how well the teachers are doing. Um, and also uh, Iman uh, Jode, who's a woman who runs a uh, travel organization that helps students and other young people take educational trips to uh, Egypt and uh, Jordan. Eric, wrap it up for us. Kagan's on his way out. Real quickly, my take on it, a lot of it's been said. 
the number of state legislators in Colorado who would first achieve their office and achieve incumbency by virtue of a vacancy committee, I'm not sure about this process. Daniel Kagan being one of them. He became a state representative before he was a state senator when Ann McGeehan resigned her seat back in 2009. And he won a small vacancy committee, a party activist. And I think... I need to fact check this, but a close to a third of the Colorado legislature is made up of people who first get there through a vacancy process as opposed to first running for office. It's something that we ought to be looking at. It does make it easier. Let's get to our favorite part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. As always, Ms. Calhoun, please start us off. If we can't take care of them, we can't have nice things. But stall doors in the bathrooms? RTD has lots of problems. It's facing a, it's facing a federal deadline on the A-line, but I'm not sure they really needed to take the bathroom stall doors off at Union Station in the bus terminal. Women's bathroom stall doors. Whew. I don't know, I'm sure how you follow that, but David, good luck. David? <laughs> Some... Young people, uh, Americans, including one from Colorado who sent out a press release bragging about it, made fools of themselves in Poland uh, last week at a uh, UN global warming conference. And their contribution was when the U.S. delegation was speaking to interrupt them uh, for seven minutes as their demonstration of their virtue and say things like, nuclear energy is genocide, which just is idiotic. Uh, it's like saying John Caldera is a tall, beautiful, blonde woman. Um, you, can, you can imagine that in your own little fantasy world, but it's not really true uh, in actual reality. So shame on them. There's so many viewers right now scarred for life and that's just that one comment. Eric, your disgrace of the week. These are tough acts to follow. How about our president? I come back to him often, but uh, this week, who's Michael Cohen? Barely know him. <laughs> it was a mistake to hire him. Just hired and just had him do low-level stuff. I mean, it's PR it's, at best. exactly. I mean, no accountability and uh, you know, not even a baseline of acknowledgement or honesty. Natasha, uh, the report that came out this week about food and uh, violations at stadiums around the country and the Denver venues that didn't do so well. Although maybe that means we just have a very robust, you know, testing system. <laughs> <laughs> that is a very or rosy a way to put that. Yes. Uh, time to see something nice. Bumper sticker edition. Patty. Michelle Obama, who visited Denver this week and proved herself to be an inspirational class act. David. The University of Colorado women's cross-country running team, which won the national championship a few weeks ago. You're here. Eric. Weekly stand- Standard magazine. It's been an important voice uh, on the conservative side of the equation. Not sure what's happening to it. Anschutz own property seems to maybe be on its way out. It's been an anti-Trump voice in the conservative circles, and there may not be room for that in that uh, particular environment these days. Natasha. Colorado Classic is going to be an all-women's race. It's a great move for women cycling. Well, two things before we go. Uh, tonight, first, uh, this is our intern Eden's last day with us this semester. She has been part of our big election season. She served as line producer and associate pro- producer for this program, a fantastic writer, and she's been doing it for many weeks. We were very lucky to have her around this fall and wish her the best of luck as she continues her studies at CU Boulder. And we have a very special treat for you for the next two weeks. We'll be off for the holidays, but we have our annual year review show next week complete with our favorite holiday sweaters. You, you will definitely want to see Joey Bunch's sweater, trust me. And the week after next, we'll offer our look ahead to the 2019 year with predictions sure to go wrong. We'll be back with fresh shows on January 4th. So until then, on behalf of everyone here at CPT12 and Colorado Inside Out, we hope you have a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. I'm Dominic Zudi. Thank you very much for watching.
Good night. Thank you.